Good morning. A while ago, I uh, had this epiphany, and I had this thought. Uh, my favorite hot breakfast cereal, I guess that's what you call it, it's like oatmeal. My favorite hot breakfast cereal is a cereal called Red River. Is anyone familiar with Red River? Okay, a few people. So good Canadian, uh, Winnipeg strong. Uh, it's like bird seed that you boil in water. and it's. Uh, but anyway, it is, it's super healthy. It's super cheap. And I think it tastes pretty good. It takes a lot of time to prepare, though, compared to normal oatmeal. Normal oatmeal you can get done in a couple minutes, or maybe it's instant oatmeal, which is a bit of a misnomer anyways. Nothing's instant. But anyways, instant oatmeal. But this takes a long time. I think the package says 17 minutes, and that's a long time. And so I had this great idea of a solution uh, to the long prep time, but still maintain uh, the healthy and cheap nature of Red River. Here's my thought. I was going to turn Red River into like a breakfast bar, into a, a granola bar of sorts. Now, before you applaud my ingenuity, it was a terrible idea. Uh, well, actually, so I'll, I'll back up. It wasn't a terrible idea. I actually think it is a great idea. A healthy, cheap breakfast bar is a great idea. But I was missing some really important steps in between. All right, my idea was cook up the Red River, let it cool, and then form it into bar-shaped objects, and then bake it. Right? I thought, that makes a lot of sense. You know, just stick it in the oven. It's going to work. And so that was my idea. And I'll tell you, I had some critics, or in hindsight, maybe wise counsel. You know, people would say, there is no way. And it, and it wasn't like, oh, there's no way, Aaron. Like, there's a glimmer of hope. It was like, no, Aaron, there's no way that this is going to work. And so, turns out they were kind of right. These logs of cereal that I put in the oven pretty much just came out as hot logs of cereal. They didn't really form. They didn't... Anyway, it wasn't a great plan. And I'll tell you, though, I ate every single one. Uh, and they were healthy and they were cheap. Uh, but I'll tell you, they weren't ready for uh, mass market. We'll say that. What I was missing was a recipe... And likely some key ingredients. Turns out if you boil bird seed and put it in the oven, you don't get delicious granola bars coming out. I was missing a recipe in the right ingredients. There was a level of arrogance where I thought, oh, my critics, also known as my wife Mariah, said, Aaron, this is a dumb idea. And I said, no, this is going to be great. Uh, so there was a level of arrogance there. And there was more than anything, probably a level of ignorance. I mean, I'm not a great cook, but that was next level uh, foolishness. So a level of arrogance and ignorance. I knew what I wanted, but I didn't have a roadmap in front of me. I didn't have a, a picture of what I was working towards other than just an idea. And so you may wonder why I start the sermon with a story about a granola bar, a failed attempt at a granola bar. Well, what's our application? Well, we are a church, Heritage Grace Church. We are a, a new church. We're a couple months in, right? And unless you're crazy, the desire here of everyone here should be that we want this to be a healthy church, a God-glorifying church. Right? That's a good goal, not unlike a healthy, cheap breakfast bar. But whether it's through arrogance or ignorance, we don't always know how to get there, how to work towards a good goal. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a church plant, the Church of Antioch. It was a healthy church. It wasn't a perfect church, but it was a healthy church. A church that 
in hindsight, was used by God for worldwide mission. And so we're going to set that before us as a, as a bit of a recipe. Right? And this is always relevant as a church, but it is especially relevant for us today right? as a church plant. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope that you're challenged with uh, the implications of uh, the gospel and the implications of what that means for us as a church, what we see at, in the church in Antioch. If you're not a Christian here this morning, first of all, I'm glad you're here. Uh, good for you for coming and, and asking questions and listening to these things. I, I, I applaud you for that. Um, but I hope at the end of this, you have a clear picture of what a healthy church needs to be, what the ingredients that go into that are, and not uh, maybe what's in your mind as a bit of a character of the Christian church. And so our big idea this morning, kids, this is where you can make your notes. Uh, and for the adults, this is where you can make your notes. The big idea this morning is to plant a healthy church, you need a recipe and the right ingredients. So to plant a healthy church, you need a recipe and the right ingredients. You don't just take an idea and chuck it in the oven. We're going to be continuing on, uh, as I've alluded to, talking about the church in Antioch. And so we're going to be in the book of Acts uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I would love if you turned uh, to the book of Acts with me. It's in the New Testament, so it's in uh, further to the right. Keep flipping. If you see some names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's after that, the book of Acts. It's a big book, 28 chapters, and so uh, hopefully you can find it if you uh, haven't before. If not, check at the front of your Bible. It'll tell you what page. But we're uh, on, in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 11, big number 11, uh, small number 19, starting in verse 19. So Acts 11, 19. If you don't own a Bible or you don't have a Bible in a translation you can read, we would love to give you one, all right? So at the end of the service, come find me or find someone that looks like they know what they're talking about, and they'll give you a Bible. There's a stack of them over there. If you just get up and wander over there, someone will grab you one, all right? If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. So let's read God's word, Acts eleven, nineteen to 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Now, out of that section of scripture, we see a number of things. Uh, but we're going to be looking at what we talk about, that recipe and those ingredients. We're going to be looking at those ingredients. And so our first ingredient this morning is evangelism. Our first ingredient is evangelism. Right away in verse 19, we see the scattered church. Why is this church scattered? Well, it says because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Right? If you know the story or if you were here weeks ago, we talked about Stephen who was killed for his faith, for preaching Christ. Right? This was ruthless. This was vile. This was horrible. And so the church was scattered. But we see God do incredible things through the scattering of the church. You'd think that this would be a real uh, step back for the church, but it actually pushes the mission forward. We saw that when we looked at Philip, Philip the evangelist. He was scattered, and he shared the gospel. And so the gospel, therefore, scattered with him. And the gospel goes to the Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? Even Saul, who witnessed Stephen's murder, right? he was converted. And then he goes on to preach. So we see this explosive nature of the scattered church sharing the gospel. It might be best described in uh, chapter 8, verse 4, when uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The thing that defined the scattered church was that they shared the gospel. Right? And so that's what we see. And we see the same thing here in verse 19 and 20. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And what were they doing? Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So for the early church, for the scattered church, evangelism was a lot more than a strategic move. Uh, it was their default position, right? Again, look at Philip. Look at Saul. Look at everybody here in the early church. They couldn't do anything but preach the gospel. And it makes sense, right? They had a life-changing encounter with the good news of the gospel. They had a life-changing encounter with Jesus why not share it, right? This message gives them hope. This message changed their life. Of course they're going to share it. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're hearing this word evangelism, you're seeing it up on the screen, what do you think of? Do you, does it mean nothing to you? You think evangel? I've heard that word, but I don't know what it's all about. Maybe you hear the word evangelism and you cringe. Right? You think, oh, I just picture someone yelling at me, you know? trying to trick me or something. I want to tell you, evangelism, the motivation is absolutely love behind evangelism. The fact that someone wants to tell you about the hope that they have in Jesus is, it's because they have a hope in Jesus, right? People talk about what they're excited about, what's had an impact on their lives. And so at risk of offending a few people, there's a joke that I want to tell you. If you're a vegan and a CrossFitter, what do you tell people about first? <laughs> so sorry, vegans and CrossFitters. But it's not even a dig, right? Because 
whether it's being a vegan or a CrossFitter, that thing's had a positive impact on your life. It excites you, you know? And so, of course, you're going to share about it. Those are just big, impactful things. And so I thought it was a funny joke. But it makes sense. It makes sense that you would share something that's that impactful to you. So when something has a big impact on your life, you want to share it. And so this is even more amplified in evangelism. This is the best news we've ever heard, our only hope in the world. And so if I tell you the good news of the gospel, it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you. Penn Jillette, a famous magician of Penn and Teller, he's the really tall one who talks, Penn and Teller, He's an he's a outspoken atheist. He's, he's made it very clear where he stands on faith and Christianity. But he says this about Christians. He says, how much do you have to hate someone not to evangelize? If you really believe the gospel, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them the good news? I think there's a lot of truth to that. He goes on to say, if I knew a bus was going to hit you and you weren't moving out of the way, at some point I tackle you. Tackle doesn't sound like a nice thing, but the motivation there is to be saved. The motivation there is absolutely love. Now, I'll tell you, not all Christians have done this perfectly. We have not certainly done it perfectly. I can say I have not done this perfectly, but the motivation is love. D.T. Niles, I I shared this quote last week. He says this, evangelism is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. I love that quote. It's not saying, here's the good news from my high horse of self-righteousness. It's saying, man, there's a hope, and I've found it. There's bread here, and I want to point you to it, not hoard it to myself. Evangelism is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And so this is what we see here. We see the early church pointing other beggars where to find bread. They have found hope in the good news of the gospel, and they're showing others. They're sharing that with others. And so we see that there's some who share with no one except the Jews, the people that are like them. They share, and that's still noble, right? We don't want to knock these people for sharing the gospel for those that are like them, not crossing over ethnic lines. But we see others who share the gospel with the Hellenists also. Now, we've run into this word Hellenists before, and we've talked about it before as the Greek-speaking Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. So in the ESV, if you have that, the one we read out of, the English Standard Version, it does say Hellenists here, but it's a different word than when we've bumped into Hellenists before. Uh, These are not the same Hellenists. It's the same word that's translated to Greek in Romans 1.16, famous verse. So where it's directly contrasted with the Jews and the Greeks. And so who we're talking about here, the Hellenists, are actually the Greek-speaking non-Jews, Right? The non-Jews are the Gentiles. And so some are sharing the gospel with the Jews. Others are sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. Now, Antioch, the city that they're in, is a major city, big city. It's the third largest at this time in the Roman Empire, right behind Rome and Alexandria. This is a diverse, incredibly diverse city, very cosmopolitan. Every nation would be represented. There are major roads going every direction out of this city. It's also a very idolatrous city. 
Uh, it was called the abode of the gods because there were so many gods represented in this place. And so you may think this is a tough place to plant a church. And it's true. It is likely, it likely was a tough place to plant a church. It's also the perfect place to plant a church. And so what we see here, uh, whether it's sharing the gospel with the Jews, the people that are like them, or whether it's sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, evangelism is a key ingredient in the early church's mission. If we flip uh, to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 12 to 15, it says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so the church of Antioch, the church in Antioch, the scattered church, they are killing it. They're nailing it. They are sharing the gospel. How are people supposed to believe in the good news if they don't know the good news? And so we've bumped into evangelism time and time again. And I'm trying to, this isn't a hobby horse. We're in the book of Acts. We're going to bump into it. But I want to remind you again, who is that person or who are those people that are in your mind that you know you need to be sharing the gospel with? We've run into this time and time again, but who is that person? Really think about who you need to share the gospel with or who you know needs the hope that you have. Who's right in front of you? Who is God placed in your life? We see God's sovereignty at work with the church in Antioch. They're scattered. It seems like bad news, but all of a sudden now they've got this incredibly diverse city right in front of them, people that they're talking to that they can share the good news with. So I ask you, who has God placed in your life that you can share the good news with? Many of you know that our church is made up of smaller groups called community groups. And so to those that are in community groups, I ask you, who's right in front of you? What relationships do you already have? Don't feel like you need to start from scratch. Rely on the fact that God is at work in the gospel going out. We have a role to play. We need to share the good news like we see them do in the early church. But who is God placed in your life? Who is on your front door? And we see this just perfect example this morning. They spoke. They literally spoke to those that were in front of them. So build and foster those relationships. I also want to say, though, what about the last person? What about the last person you could think about sharing the gospel with? Who's that? Who pops in your head there? Right? Not just the, the first person that pops in your mind. What about the last person? Because that's what we see here. We see a group of unnamed believers acting as a, a maverick of sorts, sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. This was radical. This was unheard of. We've talked about this over the last couple weeks. The gospel spreading to the Gentiles is, is kind of a crazy thought, but it's exactly what God has mapped out. And so who are the people that you couldn't imagine the gospel going to? 
be faithful like these unnamed believers who take the gospel to those that, that doesn't seem like the obvious choice. And so I want to remind you, evangelism is not optional. We are commanded, so let's do it. But I'm right with you. It is hard, but don't be discouraged. The hardest part of evangelism, the hardest part, saving souls, is not our job. The hardest part of evangelism is not our job. Donald Whitney writes this. this is a long quote, so you won't see it on the screen, but you'll see him, all right? Donald Whitney says this, what is success in evangelism? Is it when the person you witness to comes to Christ? Certainly, that is what we want to happen. But if this is success, are we failures whenever we share the gospel and the people refuse to believe? Was Jesus an evangelistic failure when people, like the rich young ruler, turned away from him and his message? Obviously not. Then neither are we when we present Christ and his message and they turn away in unbelief. We need to learn that sharing the gospel is successful evangelism. We ought to have an obsession for souls and tearfully plead with God to see more people converted, but conversions are the fruit that God alone can give. I think that's a really encouraging reminder when we think about evangelism. Right? If you've been convicted, uh, like I've been convicted, reading through the book of Acts about how little evangelism I do, how how fearful I am of sharing the gospel, rest in the hope that God's doing the heavy lifting in evangelism. And so this is what we see in verse 21. I think this is the kids' memory verse this week. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So people are being saved when the good news is preached, but not by the work of man, by the work of God. So evangelism, we've covered this uh, clearly. Evangelism is essential. But is it the only ingredient? No. We see our second ingredient, discipling. When I say the word disciple, I wonder what pops in your mind. It may be 12 guys wearing Birkenstocks with sweet tans 2,000 years ago, walking around. Jesus' disciples. I mean, maybe that's what we think of. But a disciple is a follower. I'm quite certain Birkenstocks weren't around at the time, by the way, uh, just to clarify. Uh, a disciple is a follower. A disciple is an apprentice. To be a Christian, by definition, is a Christ follower, and therefore, by definition, is a disciple. And so if you're a Christian... You are a disciple. Now, the idea of following and the idea of apprenticeship is something that we can do for one another as well. We disciple one another. And so if you're a Christian, again, you must be a disciple and you must be committed to making disciples. Mark Dever says this about uh, what discipling is. He says, discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. That is discipling. Some people have drawn a distinction between the word discipleship and discipling. 
Uh, discipleship is what we do following Christ, and discipling is what we do for one another. I don't think we have to be uh, married to those definitions, but that's what we're doing, doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. And we run into our buddy Barnabas, good old Barney. He's back. Who remembers Barnabas's nickname? Does anyone remember his nickname? Just call it out if you know it. Son of encouragement. Yes, multiple answers. That's great. Son of encouragement. What a nickname. I've had a lot of nicknames before. It's never been for good reasons. But son of encouragement. Barnabas is a good guy. And so we bump back into Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The Jerusalem church sends him to check in on what's going on. They say, oh man, big things are happening in Antioch. Let's send Barnabas up. He'll tell us what's going on. And so what does he do? Verse 23, he encourages When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He encourages them to keep being faithful. They are being faithful. They're preaching the word, and he encourages them. He could come as kind of a cynical uh, outside viewpoint and say, oh, like, how are things, what are the things I can improve here? No, he comes as an encourager. This is what we need at HGC. This is what we need at this church. This is what we need at all churches. Not fake, put on encouragement, but encouraging one another to be faithful. Right? Like a good coach cheering on the players. Like a cyclist you know, blocking the wind for hours in the peloton. Like a NASCAR team pushing the other car to the finish. Like football blocks. Like that person that's a little annoying on every team that high fives and pats on the back constantly, but man, you know you love them because you need encouragement sometimes. This is something incredible that we get to be a part of in the church. Encouragement. Encouraging one another. Holding one another up. Right, and whoever keeps leaving treats and presents on our front door and I don't know who you are or group of you, someone keeps doing it with lovely little notes, and it's very kind. That is a great example of encouragement. So this is my public profession of thank you to whoever that is. But it's an incredible thing when we can encourage one another. We can encourage one another. This is holding one another up. In Hebrews, uh, just continuing a few verses past where our tour was reading this morning, Hebrews 10 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, If we see the verse that comes right after, this is tied to our gathering. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another. And so this is tied to our being together. You know, I'm sure uh, if Zoom was around in the first century, the early church might have taken advantage of some of the perks, but I'm pretty sure Barnabas would have still gone to be with them in person to encourage them. There's something about being together and encouraging one another. It's so good to gather and look at your faces and be able to encourage one another. Even uh, things like in our singing. You know? 
I was sitting over here. You can maybe guess who some of the people were, but just hearing beautiful voices around me praising God. That is an encouraging thing, you know, seeing each other, you know, distance patting one another on the back, encouraging one another to be faithful. This is something special that we get to do in the church. And so we know that there are things that can prevent us from gathering, but it is a joy to gather and to encourage one another. Now, Barnabas needed a helper. He encouraged, but he needed a helper for the continued work. And so he goes and gets Saul. And we've talked about Saul over the last number of weeks. But he goes to Tarsus, where Saul had fled because people wanted to kill him for preaching the gospel. And so he goes and gets Saul. And this is someone that Barnabas has already encouraged and advocated for. And so he goes and gets him. And then uh, in verse 25, so it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Discipling is encouraging and it's teaching. It's coming alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's reading the Bible with them. It's praying with them. It's learning with them. It's growing with them. These are intentional relationships. They don't really happen by accident. Right? Barnabas goes and gets Saul, and they stay there for a year, encouraging and teaching this church. And so I have a question for you. Who is discipling you? You don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to really think of, okay, who is actually discipling me? And then follow that up. Who are you discipling? It would be incredible if at Heritage Grace Church we could all answer that question confidently. If we could say, I know who is encouraging me, who is teaching me, who's pouring into my life, you know, who's encouraging me to remain faithful, and who I'm doing the same for. What a crazy culture that would be. And it sounds radical, but it really only makes sense. How could we not do that? We have, uh, like our community groups where we talked about having a mission focus and, and being evangelistic, who's right in front of you, we also have structures in place called discipleship groups. They work to accomplish what we're talking about here, encouraging and teaching. And structure is great, but structure in itself does not guarantee discipling, does not guarantee discipleship. It takes investment. And so structure and strategy is good, but a culture of discipling is great. And so I have a question, and I want you to think about the answer in your head. If you're a Christian here this morning, what is stopping you from discipling, both being discipled and discipling someone else? Please don't tune out here. If you're in a DG, you may say, oh, I've got tick, I've got discipling covered. Don't tune out. You need people in your life that know your sins and your struggles. You know, uh, you know that you need people in your life that can encourage you when you trip up. Who are you counting on for that encouragement and teaching, and who's counting on you? I'm telling you, you don't have to have it all figured out to enter into this kind of a relationship with somebody. But invite people into your normal rhythms. You don't have to start something new. If you're reading the Bible, ask someone to read the Bible with you. If you're praying, pray with someone. If you uh, have no one to confess sin to, find someone to confess sin to. Bring people in to your normal rhythms of life. Author Jonathan Lehman told a story of 
uh, someone who came to him and asked him, hey, can you keep me accountable in my Bible reading? And Lehman says, well, you live down the road from me. I read my Bible. Uh, I try to read my Bible every morning, 6 o'clock, come over. And so for a year and a half, they met every morning and read the Bible together. He just invited them into his rhythm of his life. Now, there's a lot of things in discipling that would be really hard right now with COVID. But maybe you can find someone to check in on Zoom with. Maybe you can find someone uh, to follow the guidelines and go for breakfast with. Or you can uh, get together in some way, shape, or form, keep each other accountable, encourage one another, teach one another. If there's something, a barrier that's stopping you or you don't know anybody here or uh, whatever, if there's something stopping you, please come talk to me. We can tackle those things head on. I'd love to connect you with other people that you could read the Bible with, that you could encourage, that you could teach. These kinds of relationships, they pay dividends beyond uh, the here and now. Mark Dever again writes this, for me, Discipling is the only way that I can evangelize non-Christians and equip Christians in the one place I can never travel, the future beyond my life. Discipling others now is how I try to leave time bombs of grace. So it's kind of a, a quirky idea, but it's true. By pouring into others, right, you're starting a legacy of this discipling relationship. By the way, I've quoted twice from Mark Dever here. He's got a little tiny blue book on discipling called Discipling. You should buy it. It is $20 well spent. Go on Amazon, get them all. It is a phenomenal book. I highly, highly encourage you to get that book. But it talks about how we uh, have this discipling relationship, uh, these relationships, a culture of discipling in the local church. And so we have a few ingredients. We have evangelism. We have discipling. Next, we also see selfless and corporate generosity. Now, we'll only be touching briefly on this, but we see, first of all, selfless giving. Agabus comes, prophesies of a need, and the church meets it. The church gives what they have. They give what they can. They don't wait until, you know, their stable church plant they, they give because there's a need. They show Jesus' love by meeting that need. There's not a call for a certain percentage. There's not uh, a set number, but as they have ability. And I, I don't know what, this is an awkward conversation sometimes when we talk about giving and generosity, but what are the questions that pop into your mind when you think about giving? I know for me, all too often, it's how much can I give before it affects you know, my comfort? How much can I give before it affects my quality of life? That's not a good question to ask. It's how much can I give? The early church understood that all that they had comes from God and they knew how to be selfless. This giving was also corporate. I mean, they likely, just knowing what we know about the early church, they were likely individually charitable, but there was strength in this united church body giving together. They trusted their leaders and they supported a church that was far away from them, a church of a different ethnicity. Right? Our tour gave a big list earlier of people that need 
help, the persecuted church. We don't even have to look that far. There's churches all around us. There's Christians that that need us. There's people that need to be shown Jesus' love and need to have Jesus' love shared with them. And So let's be a church that uh, doesn't sit on our wallets. Let's be a church that is uh, giving selflessly, generously, and corporately. Now, another note, if you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, or if you're not a part of this church, if, if you don't call this church home, I want to be explicitly clear. We are not after your money. Okay? If you run into a church that wants your money, run away. We are not after your money. But we talk about giving because it's really important. But what we're, when we're talking about giving, that's just for the people that this is their church. You know, those who have committed to this church have covenanted together to selfless corporate generosity. Right? Our church covenant says in here, we will contribute cheerfully, generously, and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the needs of our neighbors. So if you're a member here, that's what you've committed to. But I want to be clear, if, if you're not a Christian, you don't call this church home, we're not trying to get your money, okay? But this is what a church does, selfless corporate generosity. So we see evangelism, discipling, generosity, and the final ingredient, multiplication. Multiplication. More than multiplication even, God-driven multiplication. One of our identities here at HGC is we are multipliers, talking about multiplying disciples, our community groups, and Lord willing, even churches. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about multiplication this morning. Josiah is going to be preaching on multiplication, about that identity. We are multipliers next Sunday. But a few observations from this passage. Verse 21, we already talked about. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24, the second half, and a great many people were added to the Lord. The church multiplies, and God does the heavy lifting. This church saw the fruit of multiplication, and they were also led by the Spirit for further multiplication. If you flip ahead, likely a page or two, chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, we see this church in Antioch pursuing further multiplication. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they followed the Spirit's lead and sent arguably their best on mission to further the gospel. They were a multiplying church. And multiplication is hard, right? They lost Barnabas and Saul, the encouragers and the teachers. It costs something, but it's worth it. And so multiplication is something that's worth celebrating. So when we multiply our community groups, you know, there's challenges that come there. You know, if we multiply in any way, there's sacrifices that need to be made, but let's be a church that celebrates multiplication. And so in conclusion, the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. We need to take 
good care and consider well what a church is, what a church needs to be. And I'd say it's honestly simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Churches are imperfect and unknown people. We are a church of imperfect and unknown people, planting an ordinary church, trusting in the fact that God can do extraordinary things through it. We get to be partners on mission by planting this church. We are an embassy of his kingdom here on earth. And God has not left us hanging. He's given us the ingredients in the recipe. The Bible says a lot more about what it means to be a church, but let's at least start here. Let's drill deep into evangelism, sharing the gospel. Let's drill deep into discipling, teaching, and encouraging. Let's be a generous, selfless, corporately giving church. And let's be a church that multiplies, not for our glory, but for God's glory. You may ask, is this too pragmatic? Are we thinking too practically? Are we being too strategic? Tom Bernardo writes this, you can plan a church to life. You can't, sorry, plan a church to life, but you can plan a church to death. Now, we aren't planting, uh, planning a church to death by using God's ordained methods for furthering the gospel. But we do need to be careful. Jared Wilson says this, we direct a steady diet of how-to at people who have yet to have a heartful to receive, uh, sorry, have yet to receive a heartful of I want to. Right? So I don't want to tell you, you have to do this if you don't know yet that you, you want to do this. Let's pray that God would give us a heart to grow in our evangelism, in our discipling, in our generosity, and in our multiplication. And so how do you fit into this? Well, if you're not a Christian, you start with the gospel. You start with the good news that I hope you've already seen and heard multiple times through this service that God created you, but you and I, we cannot measure up. We have sinned, we have broken God's law, and therefore we we have broken that unity, that community, that relationship that we can have with God, but he in his mercy sent his son Jesus to come and live a perfect life where he didn't sin. That's what we're celebrating in Advent. Jesus coming as a man to live a perfect life and die the penal- die and pay the penalty for sin that you deserve so that you could be made right with God. And Jesus rose from the dead showing that God's wrath had been satisfied. And so that if you're not a Christian here this morning, start there. Know that, that you're not right with God, but you can be. If you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, but you haven't joined a church, consider it. Christianity is not a solitary religion. It's not a social club. It's not the same as getting a Costco membership. Right? There's not just some perks Consider what it means to join a church, to be linking arms with people on evangelism, to be, have those kinds of discipling relationships. 
to be generous corporately and to be a part of a church that multiplies. So if you have questions about that, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be part of a church, to, to covenant together as a body of believers. And if you are a member here, you've done that. You've covenanted together as a body of believers. And so this morning, I'd encourage you to reflect on the things that you've committed to, right? the things that you've promised uh, to one another and to God in our church covenant. Right? Maybe this draws you to, uh, leads you to confession. But each of these things that we're talking about, generosity, multiplication, evangelism, discipling, we talk about in our church covenant. And so in a minute, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper, as we always do, uh, and we're going to do again where we read through our church covenant. And so take that as a chance to, to reflect on what that means for you, where you've been measuring up, where you haven't. And so for all of you, think holistically. Don't just grab an ingredient and throw it in the oven. It doesn't work. Think about the recipe. Think about all the ingredients. How can you be the faithful, unknown Christians that we read about, sharing the gospel beyond ethnic lines? How can you be the Barnabas? Right? Who can you be the Barnabas to? Who can be Barnabas to you? Are you giving sacrificially? The church in Antioch wasn't after making a name for themselves. They weren't trying to get in the magazines for first century churches to keep an eye on. They were faithfully making the gospel known. They were encouraging one another, teaching one another. They were supporting gospel ministry. And they let God do the heavy lifting. So Heritage Grace Church, let's do the same by God's help. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would enable us to, um, to live up to this calling, uh, to be your people, to be your church. God, we pray that we would be impacted by the good news of the gospel in a new and fresh way that, um, like the early church, all we could do uh, is just pour that out, to share that with a motivation of love, not as a box to tick, but to see the good news go further. God, I pray that we would um, foster these discipling relationships, that we would, again, see the motivation of those relationships as looking to follow you better, looking to follow you more. God, help us uh, kick down the walls and barricades that are preventing us from having those transparent relationships with others. God, give us uh, the boldness to share your good news and to approach others um, for these kinds of discipling relationships. God, work in our hearts uh, so that we can be a selfless, generous, corporately giving church, that we can support the needs of churches close by, churches far away, that we can support the needs of, uh, of whoever when we hear there's a need that we can, uh, without question, fill that need. And God, I pray that we would be a church that multiplies, again, not for our glory, but for your glory, that it would be the gospel going out, that people would be hearing the good news. God, we thank you for your glorious gospel that does save and transform. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.